Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Last month, my wife and I took a vacation to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and I ran into a fellow named Pete Bastunas at the campground where we were staying. We had a riveting discussion about many important things, including Pete's experience in a labor union and his evolution from a political conservative and Rush Limbaugh enthusiast to a Tom Hartman and Bernie Sanders liberal. My wife jumped into the conversation. We both agreed that Pete is a compelling speaker, a person who can help us understand thinking across the political and cultural spectrum and how to meet people where they are at and to find a way forward. Pete Bostonis is Union Steward for Local 150 Operating Engineers, and he joins us via Zoom from a bit southwest of Chicago, Illinois, after a long workday. Pete, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. No problem. Thanks for having me. And you've already worked a hard day, a, a union worker. How many union workers work their butts off? Too many to count. In my specific location where I work or in general? <laughs> <laughs> in general, some people have the misapprehension that to be a union person is to be a leaker. No. I think once you get into the union, you understand if you go through any kind of informal education within that union, that being in a union means pride in what someone does and learning the value that you have personally and taking that value and applying it to a trade and gaining some benefit from that. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that I derive from being in a union is value of myself, value of my self-worth. Because I value myself, I want to work under the best possible conditions with the best possible pay, the best possible benefits, because I matter. The right-wing message about unions is that unions are selfish, greedy individuals. All they care about is themselves. They don't care about well-being of a bigger picture. Of course, I guess that should be really supported by people from the right wing because that's capitalism, right? You care about yourself. But obviously, they don't extend that to workers. What's your perspective on that with the self-interest, the well-being of the community as a whole? I think unions benefit the communities all, definitely. The corporations, they look at people as just a number. When you go to work and you work in a union, you're more than a number because they have to recognize you. You have rights in that workplace. And most workers don't have rights in that workplace. In most situations where a union's not present, the company can dictate to those workers what they do, when they do it, how they do it, so on and so forth. Obviously, if more people get into unions, you're going to benefit from that. And I think that in general, I mean, that helps society because you're building society up. You're creating what was created in the 50s, what made this country what it is. And that's unions. You're bringing people into that. And you're creating the middle class. So one of the biggest topics I want to talk to you about today, Pete, is unions. But also I want to talk to you about ways to reach across the spectrum to make this country stronger. I think that unions had a place in this country that was pivotal, central, as you just mentioned, that it's been degraded. Is that your perspective? Absolutely. 100%. Have you been a union person all of your life? I started driving a truck when I was 22. I've been driving ever since for union companies. So yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's, I was a Teamster for about 10 years. And then I think I was about 34 and I uh, got into the operating engineers local. I had to work 4,000 hours on a permit to get my union card. Got my union card and I've been here, same company for about 18 years now. 
We've seen unions go from being a very high percentage of the working population down to very small number comparatively. I think it's been on a slight uptick, but 6% is like where it bottomed out. I think it was around 30% back in the 50s and 60s. People have to understand that that correlates with the way you live and how people are living today and how people are surviving. And I don't mean living, I mean surviving, because it's hard to live on some of the pay that some of these companies offer. A living wage is not enter into the equation in most instances, and people have to work two or three jobs just to sit there and make ends meet and support their family. So in close to 30 years that you've been associated with unions, what have you seen in front of your eyes there in Illinois, where you're part of Union 150 operating engineers? What have you seen happen in the course of those 30 years? I'll tell you, I'm, you know, I went from being a teamster to being an operating engineer. So I have a little experience in both unions. I did not feel well represented in the teamsters organization. And I think the reason for that is because their strength was diminished after a lot of those teamster locals were split up into separate smaller locals, but they never, you know, I never went through any kind of formal education in labor while I was a Teamster, but I did when I was in 150. And that informed me as to what the union was all about, where it came from, how many people died, the Haymarket massacre, for instance, you know, people dying, basically fighting for an eight hour day, fighting for a living wage. And I think we're still in a sense fighting that fight today unfortunately, and it's 2021. And how insane and crazy does that sound after going from you know kids working in coal mines and having to work to support the family and wives and daughters, you know, going out and working and you know, after you know the men went to war and things like that. And just basically working because, you know, obviously nobody wants to be lazy. That's you know, no and nobody wants to be admonished as being lazy. So people go work. Unfortunately, if you don't give yourself, like I talked about before, the value that's necessary to sit there and go out and say, you know what? No, I'm worth more and say, I should get more. So I'm going to demand more. That's what unions did. They demanded more. Those people stood up in the beginning to say, I'm not going to work 13, 14 hours. If I work over eight hours, you're going to pay me time and a half. Unions basically fought to sit there and bring that living wage up to give people the dignity and the self-respect that they deserved. And I think unions today play a pivotal part doing that. But unfortunately, because of the way politics is today, unions get a bad rap because of the right echo chamber is so strong that it creates this doubt in people's minds that somebody would actually be looking out for your best interests. I think that your consciousness got raised, was elevated along the way. You weren't always a big Bernie Sanders or Tom Hartman fan. I didn't even know about them, actually, (laughs) back in the day when I was a Teamster. When did you switch over to the operating engineers? 2004. So that's very close to the time that you started making a transition in your thinking as well. I did. When I met you while we're on vacation, my wife and I are on vacation, you're on vacation with your wife and family, and you told me that you used to be a big fan of Rush Limbaugh. And I, I said, this eloquent, insightful person was a Rush Limbaugh fan? <laughs> I, that, that didn't make sense to me. Can you make sense of it for our listeners for Spirit in Action? I would say that early in my life, I was naive to things around me. I saw things, but I didn't understand things. I didn't pay attention to the details. And sometimes if you don't pay attention to the details, you can get swung in one direction or the other very easily. I never asked the question why. And I think that's an important thing to ask when you're looking at an ideology. 
when you look at some of the things that Rush Limbaugh espoused, I never questioned it because it sounded good. It sounded right. It sounded on point. You know, I mean, yeah, we should all work hard and we should all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And there's no racism here. I'm not a racist just because this, that, and the other. And so why do they have to have a, a Black Miss USA pageant? You know, they don't have a White Miss USA pageant. And then, and then when you dip into it and you understand, well, maybe they have that because they've been oppressed in this country forever. And it's never been acknowledged. And that's the problem. That's the problem with racism in this country. That's the problem with that hot button issue. When you don't address something, what happens? It gets worse. And until you address it, you can't heal. It's the same thing with the human body, right? Until you address an injury or an ailment, it doesn't get better unless you actually address it. And in this country, we've never really addressed that. And that was some things that he espoused. He gave me permission, if you will, to think the way I wanted to think. And I was raised that way. I mean, I had exposure to African-American kids and Chinese kids and Mexican kids and white kids and all kinds of kids, but I more gravitated towards my own kind, you know, white people. And it's like, because I lived in an area where there weren't a whole lot of black people, Mexican people, or any other people there. So you tend to, this is my environment. This is who I'm surrounding myself with. And then you get kind of a worldview based on that instead of understanding that there's something else out there. And I was never really exposed to that. So I guess you could say I didn't live a a rich life by any means, but I lived kind of a privileged life in the sense that I never really wanted for too much. And I never understood struggle. And I think as I got older and I started working and I started earning my own way, I understood what struggle was, you know, because you're working to pay your bills. You're working to make ends meet so that you can put food on the table. Life happens. Then you slowly understand, wow, there's a little more to this. And after you get out of your little bubble, and at least me, you start to experience life a little bit, then you open up a little bit. But my real pivot didn't come until I switched over to Local 150 and I got that education labor. And that kind of drove that point home as far as work and that struggle with people. Then I got more into those issues and I tried to understand things, you know, like all my life, I I went to church, I was raised in a full gospel Pentecostal home. And, you know, you're taught certain things from the Bible that sometimes don't comport to the way the left dictates some of their agenda. For instance, like abortion, you know, they preach that abortion is wrong and it's murder and this, that, and the other, but they don't talk about the details, just like Rush Limbaugh didn't talk about the details. They don't talk about, well, what happens if a woman gets raped? What happens if there's incest? What happens if there's something wrong with the child and it's not viable outside the womb? What happens if it threatens the life of the mother? You know, life is not black and white, it's gray. And you can't be so rigid to sit there and say, well, God wouldn't have wanted this because it's not in the Bible. It doesn't ever say thou shalt not commit abortion. <laughs> you know, and I liked what Bill Clinton had said a long time ago. He said, I would hope that abortions are rare and safe. And the way you make them rare and safe is you educate and you give people the tools with which to work and to sit there and protect themselves, not have children if they don't want them. And you teach women about safe sex. You teach men about safe sex. You teach that. So through education, you can sit there and reduce that, that negative in society, which is abortion. And I'm not for, nobody's for abortion. I don't think on the planet, but I'm for a woman's right to choose. I think it's her body. She should make that choice herself. And I think my opinion on a lot of issues have evolved like that, where I look at the other side, instead of just looking at things through my point of view, I think that shifted me from like a Rush Limbaugh and made me a little more open to someone like Tom Hartman. I listen to him a lot and he makes a lot of sense and he makes you think. 
He does. I'll be interviewing him about his latest book about healthcare, which I guess you haven't seen since I have the advanced copy. But Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> I am a lucky guy. And it's also a privilege to talk to Tom Hartman and other such great minds working on our behalf. Again, we have you here, Pete Bastonis, in part because you're a union steward for the local 150 operating engineers. One of the, I think it's a weakness that I perceive, is that labor is not given as big a voice and a seat at the table as it deserves in liberal politics, so to speak. Call this liberal, but it's really just what's good for the people as a whole, is what I'm thinking. You were a Rush Limbaugh fan listener. I was. And somewhere around 2004, you started making transition. You, you went from Teamsters to the operating engineers. Did you change what you listened to? Was this education that came from the local 150? Where did your education about this? You learned to ask the question, why? Where did that come from? I have to give some credit to my wife because my wife has been a liberal longer than me. She loved me, so she overlooked my conservative failings, and she uh, she stuck with it, you know, and it paid off because eventually conversations that we would have started to make me think also. You know, that started that gradual shift, and then having the education within Local 150 through their Comet class, which is basically an education and labor class, getting that education and then looking for food, so to speak which is, you know, someone on the radio that can explain something better to me that I'm interested in, different issues that I might be interested in. I found I stumbled onto Tom Hartman, started listening to him a lot, and he made a lot of sense. And he would have conservatives on and debate them. I like that. And it was different than a Rush Limbaugh show because what he would do is he would take phone calls and he would espouse his thoughts. And then he would take phone calls from people that were in that echo chamber with him and give them back to him the same thoughts. And they would just go bouncing back and forth with a lot of the same rhetoric. It wasn't really enlightening because it's, it's all the same stuff. I liked hearing Tom talk to conservatives because I would hear their viewpoints and they would sound familiar to me. And then he would sit there and explain to them and to me why that wasn't right, why this didn't work, why this was a problem. I just love that about him, that he's he's able to sit there and take these people on. And he always says, I like to do this so that it gives you a thought process to sit there and discuss issues with other conservatives so that you can at least make your points so that they would understand where you're coming from and hopefully make an impression on them to sit there and make them think, because that's where it starts. You have to think. You have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You have to, like uh, President Obama said, you know, walk a mile in someone's shoes, you know. And once you understand that, then, then you can empathize. And when you can empathize, then you start to open up a little bit more as far as, wait a minute, this is an injustice. That's not right. This isn't right. I remember during the North Dakota Access Pipeline debacle where the Keystone Pipeline was going through or the, well, they were trying to put the pipeline through and a lot of the Native Americans stood up and stood against those construction companies. Now, those construction companies, ironically, would be a union that I would be part of. So there's a pull here because a lot of people in my local, like a lot of the pipeliners and so forth, a lot of them are conservative. And they're conservative because their industry relies on oil and gas. That's a big part of them working. And I, I get that. I understand where they're coming from. But like I've always told them, if we get into infrastructure and we replace all the sewer mains in this country and all the water lines in this country, you'll have work for hundreds of years. <laughs> you know, And pipe is pipe. You can lay water pipe, you can lay oil pipe. But when I watched that tug of war going on, that moved me. 
I donated money. I bought a couple of shirts. I bought a sweatshirt because part of the profits, you know, went to the tribes out there. I understood where they were coming from because industry is one thing and working a job is one thing and making a living is one thing. But when your job, your living interrupts someone else's life and could destroy the environment, then you have to take a step back and take a pause. And you have to place that above any kind of profit or monetary motive that might be behind it. I'm really hoping, folks, that in our conversation today with Beat Bastunas, that we'll come to understand ways that we can talk across the spectrum to lead this country in a better place, do more world healing. As you said, Pete, in listening to Tom Hartman, I think you got a lot of the vocabulary. You got a lot of the arguments, the why behind the issues. Sure. This changed you significantly starting 2004. I would say it was a gradual change, probably starting in 2004. But I think my passion for politics and fighting for different causes really came out when Trump got elected. That happened because I I think inherently I recognized something in Trump that was dangerous, along with a lot of other people in this country. Unfortunately, not enough to sit there and not get him elected, but fortunately enough did recognize that second go around to get Joe Biden elected. But I recognized something in him that was dangerous. And I knew I had to stand up to that. And I joined my Democratic Party out here where I live. And I joined Indivisible. And the lady that actually headed the chapter nominated me as the president of that group. But we kind of merged back into the Democratic Party because our numbers aren't as high as they were, obviously, when Donald Trump was here. Because he was a motivating factor, unfortunately, unfortunately for the group. But we did marches. I was outside Adam Kinzinger's office on one cold, cold night when they were doing the first impeachment. There was about 50, 55, 60 of us out there. And we froze our butts off and we were shouting across the street at Trump supporters. It was a pretty active night. And we had some confrontations, face-to-face stuff, did not engage with the one guy that came across the street and got in my face. And he, you know, I just told him to go back across the street, you know, and, you know, because we wanted to keep it peaceful, but we wanted to make our point that they needed to impeach him. They needed to convict him and they needed to remove him from office. He was a clear and present danger to this country and to everything you know we stand for. But I digress. That's probably when I really started to dig deep into the politics of it, if you will. You know, before that, I was, you know, good union guy. I understood, you know, where my bread was buttered, so to speak. Went to union meetings and took care of issues there and was a strong advocate for the union. But politically speaking, I didn't understand the necessity of calling your representatives and things like that. But, you know, through listening to Tom Hart, he always says, you know, he puts the number out there. I have it in my phone. I call my representatives. I talk to them. I talk to other representatives, you know, let them know, hey, you know, get your head out of your butt. You need to do this, you know. And I've had some good conversations, I had some bad ones, but you know, we got to be heard. And that's continued to a point. I still go to the Democratic meetings and that's really engaged me. I stumped for Bernie Sanders when he ran for president. Met some good people out there when I'm knocking on doors. Made some phone calls into Wisconsin for your Senate race up there. That point right there kind of moved me in that direction, politically speaking, a little bit harder. I still want to flesh out some of the thought process that goes from your early days. I mean, Donald Trump was only elected president some five years ago. Right. So that's relatively recent. Uh, your involvement with Bernie Sanders must extend a little bit more widely than before that, right? Yeah, that was. And you've mentioned Bill Clinton favorably a couple times, and he hasn't been in office for a long time now. So, Well, it, it just I don't see presidents as good or bad in general. 
you judge people individually based on what they do. I think by and large, I think uh, Bill Clinton did some good things and he probably did some bad things. NAFTA was one of the bad things. And what that did is that allowed for the breakup of industry in this country. And turns out we needed industry in this country. We needed manufacturing. And when you ship all those jobs overseas, there's a consequence. We're paying that consequence now. But listening to Tom Hartman, you understand that that was a Republican bill and that was a Republican agenda that he signed into law with Republican support and very limited to no Democrat support in the House and the Senate. When you understand that, then you understand that the winds weren't blowing that way. It's just he did that probably as a tit for tat kind of you do this for me, I do this for you, kind of a political thing. Unfortunately, that affected this country in a very negative way, I think. Was he by and large a, a decent president? Probably. He's not my favorite president. And who's your favorite? Probably FDR, largely because of his progressive legislation. <laughs> we wouldn't have Social Security without him. Right. Lyndon Johnson's up there only because the Voting Rights Act. But if you judge the whole presidency, you, you can pick things out that weren't great, weren't favorable. But when they have landmark legislation and landmark things that affected people for decades forward, you know, like Social Security, like Medicare, like the Voting Rights Act, those things shape our future. Those are pivotal things. You know, Barack Obama was a good president. I wish he could have done more, especially with healthcare. I think he tried, but the politicians are very entrenched in Washington, you know, and so is the healthcare lobby. That prevented us from getting uh, at least a, a public option. That would have been nice if it weren't for Joe Lieberman. <laughs> Crazy that one person ends up holding sway that way. I want to talk a little bit more about the deep roots motivation that sustains, I think, people with right-wing ideas against their own self-interest and against the best interests of the culture. It's almost a caricature that the Teamsters are, oh, I'm tough. It's me. I got muscles, right? There's this idea that that's what Teamsters mean. The operating engineers aren't far from that, though. I mean, we're the same. Any kind of labor union, the machismo that goes along with being in that union is prevalent, no matter what. If I'm an iron worker, if I'm a plumber, uh, if I'm an operating engineer, if I'm a teamster, this kind of gives you that gruff, that hard exterior so that you're less likely to sit there and open yourself up to like some of the issues like you brought up earlier, like gay rights and things like that, or women's rights. You're a little less prevalent to sit there and be open to that because you have this image to uphold, so to speak. I see that a lot in the union. You see a lot of guys, they're big and tough and they do this and rah, rah, you know, like you said, there's this social view or appearance that they want to put out there when in actuality, you know, if you're talking about issues, things that matter, things that really mean something, you have to think of those rights. You have to think of women's rights. You have to think of gay rights because your child could be gay someday. You don't know. And are you going to just not love them because they're gay? No, of course not. You know, I mean, it wouldn't even occur to me. And I would hope that it wouldn't occur to them either. But some people aren't like that because they can't empathize. They can't get there. They can't understand by walking in someone else's shoes. Well, the thing I wanted to ask you about specifically was there's a heart and mind altering culture in the U.S. about individualism. And the reason this is particularly important is because you're part of labor unions. Pete Bostonis is a union steward. The 150 local is, these are people working together. You have your power through working together. And yet there's this very strong idea of individualism, which I think has undercut unions. And it's also been part of what's been espoused by people like Rush Limbaugh. 
from the left, there's more of an espousal of let's work together. Although I think the people on the left are really bad at working together. They don't unionize nearly as well because- Because there's so many issues, Mark. That's why they get splintered out. Everybody's got their cause. And it's tough to sit there and build that coalition. So what I want to learn a little bit more of, you made this transition. Number one, you're based with a good wife who helps move you in the right direction. You've got some good education that comes from labor union. You flip the dial on the radio and you find Tom Hartman. Those are three forces. So your eyes have been opened significantly. Yeah. Have you been able to pass that on to your brothers and sisters of the union? I do pass it on. Sometimes it's received in a decent way and other times it's not. I had an altercation with one guy at my shop where I work and he wore a Trump hat to work and I told him to take it off. <laughs> and uh, uh, later on, I was I talked to my, my business agent and I let him know what happened. And he said, well, actually he can wear that because we want to be able to wear our stuff too. You know, I know we don't agree with it, but it is what it is. You know, he's got the right to do it. I said, okay, that's fine. So I, I went back to him. And I let him know that, you know, he could wear it if he wanted to. You know, I just didn't like it. So trying to have conversations of substance while you're at work is kind of tough because it's more of a passive environment. You're not really, it's not that deep. You're not really digging into issues and things. Occasionally we will, and we'll talk about something that maybe affects everybody. But I've talked to my mom, believe it or not, about democratic values and things like that because she was a Fox watcher. She's in her 70s. She's in that demographic, you know, people that tend to watch Fox a lot. And she's always been conservative her whole life, but she's informed more by religion. Everybody has their informing issue, whether it be guns, whether it be God, whether it be anti-gay, anti uh, a man and a wife is how things should be. And you have your hot button issues. And I think those issues, those social construct issues, those are what separate us from our best interest. And those are what separate labor members from their best interest because they think, well, my gun is important to me. Who supports my gun? Well, the right. Well, then I'm, I'm going to lean right because I don't want to lose my gun. Well, religion's important to me and I don't believe in abortion. Well, who's against abortion? The right. Well, I guess I'm right then. Well, how can you be right if you know, the labor union is advocating for you against corporations, which are right. And you're advocating for the right, which is corporations. How do you get that together? It's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. You know, it doesn't make any sense. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to guys about stuff like that. I'll say, how can you vote against your own interest? If this politician, he's a Republican, he's not going to advocate for labor unions, doesn't support labor unions, doesn't think labor unions should exist. So then what? Where do you go from there? I'll have my guns, but no home and <laughs> no food and no roof over my head. Yeah, exactly. How they get you socially to think that every small little issue is just mammoth. You know, how somebody says something. If somebody doesn't stand for the flag, they kneeled. Oh, good Lord. Well, then you must not be a patriot. And it's, it's like, that's not what that means. You're inferring a lot about this individual because they took a knee. You should only infer that they have a reason for taking the knee, then you should ask them, why'd you take a knee? Because I want to bring awareness to police violence against Black people. Okay, that should not be a problem with anybody. But they make such a big deal out of that. And they rally the troops, so to speak, and foment all this anger. And the, the opposite reaction to that is enormous flag waving and incredible nationalism, right? Because now my flag is everything. And, now, and that's why we see flags on pickup trucks and flags hanging out of windows and people wearing flags. And, and that makes you a patriot now. That makes you an American. And it's just 
it's ridiculous. We touched that on that uh, privately, you and I, when we talked, and it's it's just hilarious sometimes to see that. But I try to have those conversations with uh, some of the guys that I work with. But I've had that conversation with my mom. She said she voted Democrat this last election, so that could be a win. <laughs> that could be a win. Yeah. Well, we we'll take the step by step. That's right. The step by step. The longest march can be won. Mm-hmm. Folks, we are speaking to Pete Bastunas. He is union steward for Local 150 Operating Engineers. That's down in Illinois. I met him while my wife and I were on vacation, and I think he brings an invaluable perspective to this conversation that we need to have in our society. That's why I entitled this from Rush Limbaugh to Tom Hartman to Bernie Sanders, Union Stewart. It's so important to have the blue collars, the ivory towers. We all need to talk and understand each other, and we can together arm in arm progress in this country. And that's why I have him here today for Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. Find links to all of the guests for the past 16 years that we've had here for Spirit in Action and for Song of the Soul. Post comments, get the conversation going, give us information, give us pointers, give us clues of where we should be talking to be useful to you to engage in world healing. You can also on the site finds all of the 42 stations nationwide that carry our programs. Please follow and support them. It's so important to support alternative media and alternative people who can express well. When Pete talks about the fact that Tom Hartman gave him the language, the insights, the understanding of the wise. And so please support all of those media and support Northern Spirit Radio. You can donate to us via our website, via our Facebook page, all of this. And please help us get the word out to make it more powerful in the world. Pete Bastunas is here. He's in Illinois where he works for the local engineers. Give me a perspective, if you would, Pete, about blue collar versus ivory tower versus these thought streams. I have a feeling that there was a point where FDR, who you mentioned earlier, FDR, I think, was bringing the, all the classes, the levels of interest together. I think they've been very skillfully set against one another. The people you work with, would you call them mostly blue collar? Everybody, pretty much. I think, if I may, you know, FDR was, he was a wealthy man. He was a traitor to his class. <laughs> he was. I think he had the ability to sit there and bring people together like that because he had power. Because wealth denotes power in our society, unfortunately, but he used it for good. I appreciate that about him. I appreciate that he brought that forward. He didn't have to. He could have given into the dark side, so to speak, and advocated for his brethren, his circle, and been just a regular president, walked away a millionaire, you know, and, and not looked back. But I think he was informed, and I think history bears this out by his wife in a lot of ways. She was a very intelligent woman. And she guided him in the way that so many women do, my wife included, in a more egalitarian way that would benefit everybody in society. I think that's the biggest challenge, to sit there and, and have a voice that can be heard that has the ability to actually make change happen. You know, Barack Obama, when he was president, he had that ability because he had that voice. Unfortunately, I think there were some other interests that he may have been beholden to, which prevented him, I think, from going full progressive, if you will. (laughs) Not to say that he was a bad president and did, you know, bad things. I think he, he... advocated for some of the right things, made a lot of good decisions, made some bad ones. But, you know, like I told you before when we talked, you know, you don't elect God as president. You elect a man, you elect a woman, 
hopefully someday, but you elect a human being, a person, and they're fallible. They make mistakes. So to sit there and give godlike credence to a human being is not natural. And I think in a lot of ways, like the people on the right, especially with Trump, they give him almost a deity type persona. They place that on him. And I think that's dangerous. I think in our circles, though, getting back to that, I think it's tough to be heard if you don't have power and to get your message out if you don't have power. Because there are a lot of smart people that I've run into and a lot of very intelligent people that have had great ideas and that have been passionate about those ideas and their activism. But they don't get heard by too many people because they don't have that platform with which to speak. That's the greatest challenge, I think, for us today is the people with those ideas. It can't just be those people in those ivory towers, like you said. It can't be those people that are in positions of authority, in positions of power. They have to hear regular people and they have to understand what goes on at that grassroots level. Like I said, you know, I mean, I work with predominantly blue collar guys. They go to work, they go home, they come back to work, they go home, so on and so forth. You know, this is what we do, but it's with purpose. Obviously, everybody has their own agenda, their own path to sit there and follow. But I think it's it's tough to sit there and get your message out there, get your thought process out there if uh, you don't have a platform with which to speak. So it's tough. And as I said, most of the media are controlled by some very narrow economic interests. But there's also the question of the unions. And again, your union, Stuart. Unions were so important in this country in its heyday. They still are. They still are. And co-ops, and there are all kinds of co-ops where farmers banded together and therefore got their power. There's so many ways that we build community and this strong individualist impulse that I think to some degree, Rush Limbaugh and others like to feed actually disempowers the thing that can serve in opposition to the great economic concentrations. If you're rich, you got power. Well, if you're in the union, you may not be rich, but if you're thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands strong, you got power. But we've undercut that. I think there's a a dangerous way that we think in this country about individualism that completely undercuts it. And it's as much a danger amongst the ivory towers as it is amongst blue collar workers. And so one of the things that I think historically has happened is you said you got very involved in politics when Donald Trump became president, that opposition to him got you involved. We're pretty good at stepping up and saying, that's crap. We don't like that. One of the things that undercut and I think limited the power that happened during Obama's term was that people said, okay, well, we got the president and we don't have to do things. If people had been pushing together arm in arm throughout his terms, I think that we could have gotten so much more done in in a positive direction. That goes without saying, I think, with just about any president that gets elected, I think if you stay on your legislators and you call and you make yourself known and say, hey, we got to push this through, we got to push that through, that's necessary throughout all time. Trump was draining, you know, I think for a lot of people because he demanded so much opposition because you felt like at any moment you could lose your democracy. At least that's how I felt. I felt like it was under threat every day. I mean, if there was a march or there was something I could go to, or we rallied for the postal workers when DeJoy threw out the machines and tried to undercut the election that way to try to kill the mail. And they recognized that at the post office. And they said, thank you. We got a lot of honks and we got a lot of positive feedback from that. And likewise, you know, like with the other protests that we did, but it's hard to sit there and underscore the value of unions in this country because 
because when you compare it to someone like FDR and he had wealth and he had a platform basically because of his wealth and his wealth gave him power. And like you said, when we're in a union, that collective gives you power and that gives you the ability to say to a company, no, we're not going to take that. We want this because that's a fair wage or this is a fair benefit or we're not going to take a pay cut and we're not going to take a pay freeze because we're worth more than that. I think in that context, we have power. But like you said before, through legislation and through policies, they're adverse to unions and labor. Those things get weakened throughout time. Little by little, they cut into our power by diminishing the role that that union can take in advocating for us. For an example, like when Trump was the president, he put Peter Robb on the NLRB. And Peter Robb is staunchly corporate, staunchly against unions. And he's on the National Labor Relations Board. <laughs> Anybody that's antithetical to the process, to what their industry or their agency is designed to propagate, to support, Anybody that's antithetical to those organizations, he placed them in power in those various groups. Somebody who's against the environment, you're going to run the EPA. <laughs> you know, <laughs> He did that in almost every post, right? Every, every cabinet post. Uh, Betsy DeVos against public education. She's a private educator. She advocates for private robber barons to take over the, the system and preach their word. Yeah, let's put her in charge of the education department. You know, it, it's the same thing with labor. You know, he put Peter Robb on the NLRB and he got fired by Joe Biden. That was an underpinning to sit there and say, okay, well, if we bring a dispute to the labor board, it's not going to come out in our favor because obviously there's somebody that's advocating for corporate America that's on the labor board. <laughs> so it's baked in, so to speak. So when we get rid of those people and when we don't undercut those organizations that can benefit working class people like unions, then we keep our power. We hold on to our power. You know, that, I think that's, uh, you know, for blue collar people, for regular guys like us, that's pretty much, that's what we got. Because if you go out there and you work in a you know, regular job that doesn't have labor representation through a union, you're on your own. You're going to have to knock on the boss's door and you're going to have to say, hey, can I have a raise? And he's going to probably say no, because he can. And that's, that's where we get our power. I think that, again, while the right-wing or right-leaning people or pro-capitalist-leaning people tend to think capitalism is good because people will act in their own self-interest and therefore that will be this great economic engine for the nation. So people say selfishness and capitalism is good. When it came to unions, they said, no, look at these selfish unions. All they care about is their wages. I think there is probably an argument that that's still going to be good economic generator for us. I mean, theoretically, they could make that same argument in that direction. But I'm curious in your perspective, and again, as union steward for Local 150 operating engineers, do you see cases where unions are supporting world healing values, not just to benefit their pocket, but which benefit the community? So to some degree, we look at corporations and they say they don't care how much poison they put in the earth as long as they make a buck off of it, right? Sure. Do unions care if it affects their pocket too, you know? I think one of the main things that unions bring to the table along with a living wage and a great benefits package and so on and so forth are those, those working conditions, the safety aspect. They care about their members as far as, you know, wearing proper safety gear, mandating some of those things in the workplace so that they can protect employees. You had an interesting experience about your perspective on war as you received from your grandfather. And I'd love it if you'd share with our listeners for Spirit in Action some of the development of your thinking and that that you received from your family. Back in the day when my grandfather was with us, he has since passed, rest his soul. 
um, he relayed a story to me of him being overseas in Europe. It was commonplace for soldiers to wear their uniforms whenever they were on leave, you know, wherever they went, they had to have their uniform on. Um, but there was, uh, they were in Monte Carlo and he decided to go buy a suit. He bought a suit and he put the suit on and he went to the casino and he walked into the casino and uh, he was shocked at what he saw. He saw German generals, American generals, Russian generals, all playing cards, laughing, smoking, drinking. And it gave him pause because obviously this was a serious endeavor that they were embarking on in Europe, uh, fighting fascism. And here you have our enemies sitting at a table, playing cards, drinking, smoking, laughing it up. It gave him that perspective that this war, this uh, this thing that they were led to believe that was in America's interest, maybe wasn't in his interest because obviously this wasn't a pressing matter to these guys. And it changed the way he looked at war. It changed the way he looked at our country, essentially asking you to serve and do something for your country. Because if this is how your country is represented, well, what's the point? because there's really no division here. They're together. These are obviously friends. These people know each other. I'm going to go out on the battlefield now and I'm going to do what this guy says and attack this guy. And he was somewhat bewildered when he saw that and it really affected him and it caused him to kind of do an about face. And he was a product of his time. He had some racist tendencies, things like that, but that alone kind of turned him And later in life, he made amends with that. And he understood his upbringing, the way he was brought up was not right. You know, he made some efforts to change that going forward. And I'm glad he did, you know, but we would have conversations from time to time, my aunt, my dad, him, and we'd go out and he was the lone lefty and we were all the righties and we were kind of ganging up on him, you know, but I wish he'd been alive today to see the transformation myself and my father, we turned and uh, (laughs) we look at things a little bit clearer now. (laughs) And Pete, how has that affected you? Of course, your your grandfather has this radically altered view of what it means to serve your country, the military, right. who is serving our country and whose interests are being served. So he has that awareness. You've got a father and then yourself. What has been your father's and then your view about the military escapades of this country? Well, my dad served in the Navy, so he's got he's got a little history there. While I was in high school, I was in ROTC for the Marine Corps for four years. Patriotism was something that we felt, you know, in our family and we felt strongly about. My grandfather served, my great-grandfather served. But, you know, as time went on, you know, obviously my grandfather relayed that story to me. But then after I started making my transition from right-leaning Rush Limbaughite to more of a center-left Tom Hartman follower, you start to understand that the best way to honor soldiers is not to create more. Because there's only one path that a country can take. And you can either be, like Tom Hartman likes to say, you can either be an empire or you can be a country. But you have to choose. And right now we're on the empire path. I do like what I'm seeing with Joe Biden. Though. He's pulling a lot of our troops out of Afghanistan and making that withdrawal, you know, to sit there and try to pull back somewhat and relinquish some of that hold that we've had on some of those lands that really don't belong to us. But you understand that, you know, like I learned this like through Tom Hartman, you know, that, you know, like the Vietnam War was basically fought on, the, you know, a lie. For that matter, the Afghanistan Iraq invasion on a lie. Weapons of mass destruction. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, so many instances in our country's evolution, wars have been fought for their interests, for the powers that be for their interests, whether it be oil, whether it be trade lanes, whether it be, you know, a foothold in a country to get you to another country, 
whatever their agenda was, they would twist that so that it would become patriotic. So people would feel emboldened to be part of this, to sit there and fight for our country, for their interests, not for our interests, but for their interests. Even World War II, you know, we didn't want to get into that war, but we did, you know, eventually. And a lot of people kind of speculated that FDR might have known that they were going to attack Pearl Harbor, you know, but it's neither here nor there now. But to sit there and say that we've had honest or pure intentions when it comes to war and our country fighting them is probably not accurate, just based on on the history of our engagements in the, in the past and everything. So I think, I think Tom Hartman said one time that the GDP of Afghanistan was about $2 billion. We could have probably given them $2 billion and doubled their GDP and got bin Laden. Probably wouldn't have cost so many lives. But I don't think George Bush wanted to do that. He needed a war so that he could promote his presidency. Pretty selfish, if you ask me. (laughs) And deadly. You know, I mean, how many people had to die for that? So to be clear about it, Pete, before you started making your transition from Rush Limbaugh to Tom Hartman to Bernie Sanders, would you have described yourself as pro-war, pro-military? I think I can recall a conversation that we had at uh, breakfast once, my dad, my grandfather, myself, about the actual invasion when it came to invading Iraq and going into Afghanistan. And I was 100% behind it, 100%, because I was angry. And I didn't have the temperament to sit there and ask the question, what's going on here? What's happening here? To sit there and try to understand the circumstance. My grandfather, on the other hand, he said, this is wrong. And this is a a man that fought in World War II. He said, this is wrong. And this was after 9-11. He said, why are we going into Iraq? They didn't do anything. Why are we going into Afghanistan? They didn't do anything either. What are we doing? I said they had weapons of mass destruction in there, so they had to go in there and get them. And Saddam Hussein's a bad guy anyway. The talking points that were fed to you, yes. Correct. He's a bad guy and he treats his people horribly and he kills people and this, that, and the other. So this is justified. Let's go get him. Like I said, this is something that I was 100% for. And later on, I look at it and I I hang my head at it because I can't believe that I would ask the, the right questions. You know, like, why? Why are we doing this? I thought I was being patriotic, but I was being more nationalistic when I was supporting my country, regardless of what the circumstance was. And that's not what a patriot does. A patriot uses their eyes and thinks and says, is this right or is this wrong? And uses their own moral judgment to decide. And through that decision, you make your country accountable. And in that way, you're being more patriotic by saying, we need to be better or we're doing a good job. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Pete, was about the evolution of your thought with these insights that your grandfather had, anti-war, he was a liberal, the fact that your father and then you were on the conservative end. I, I think you said you were baptized Greek Orthodox, and then you were mainly raised as full gospel Pentecostal type churches. Yep. That's a milieu that I think predisposed people towards some rather conservative values. And I'm wondering, at what point did you break free of those ideas? I mean, I think that carried some weight with you for a certain number of years in your life. It did for a long time. When I finally realized that I could be a good person without proving it, and I think in organized religion, you're asked to prove it all the time, to sit there and show your, your religiosity, if you will, by being against the things that they're against and being for the things they're for and standing lockstep with the church. And I realized that sometimes I didn't agree with the church. I don't think it's right to sit there and mandate what a woman should do with her body, for instance. I think that type of patriarchy is wrong, and I don't think it has a place in our society. 
obviously religion has a benefit. It's just not something that I think you have to wear a lot around like some kind of badge of honor or something like, look at me, I'm I'm a full gospel, I'm a Pentecostal Christian, you know, and I believe this and I believe that. It's that's that's fine. You can believe that, you know, but it doesn't have to be all in your face like that. I don't think that's necessary. I think I said this to you when we met a couple of weeks ago during vacation time, that my perspective is it's it's not a problem with religion per se, but it is what flavors of religion. And just as George Lakoff says, those that are dominant father-oriented ways of thinking, and there are religions that work in that way, that their interests tend to be as opposed to what George Lakoff calls the nurturant parent ways of thinking. What's happened is the dominant father forms of religion have been fed and grown and they've taken the entire stage, whereas the nurturant parent forms of religion, which therefore listen to women and concern about equality or care for the earth or, or so on, those have been deserted by and large by people so that we no longer have an offsetting to what I see as a negative force in religion. So, I mean, I'm Quaker, right? So Quakers oppose women's right to choose what, you know, this is, we're so not hierarchical, all of that kind of thing, but that we're just one variety of religious approach. What's happened is the bad ones stayed and grew and were fed. And the other ones were all deserted by all the people on the liberal end. And so, as I perceive it, both politically as well as religiously, liberals left religion. And so that religion comes to be identified with the conservatives, who are the only ones left. And the liberals, therefore, do not have a heart-centered way of working together arm in arm, except, as I perceive it, unions. A union is, to me, the unions of the 1920s, 30s, where people were dying side by side for the good of the people. That was a religious ideal, even though it didn't have necessarily priests and ministers and sacraments or whatever. So I think, unfortunately, in our society, we on the liberal end have undercut the power for good that we could be doing in our society. I agree. I, I think that that is, it's important to kind of look at it that way to say unions, I think, offer in a not so religious way the chance for people to come together for common cause. If you have common cause, you could make some strides and you can have some successes and you could enjoy the fruits of your endeavor. I understand what you're saying, though, with religion and the left leaving religion in that sense because you don't have that dominant hierarchical father in. I think a lot of people probably rejected that because it's kind of antithetical to what we or how we feel about equality, how we feel about justice, how we feel about honoring the earth and so forth and not polluting and things like that. These are important things that we hold dear, but not necessarily on the right in some of those other religions. I think, like you said, they focus more on the authority aspect of their religion instead of what can we do to be better stewards of the earth? What can we do to be better stewards of each other and help one another? You know, And I know there's an underlying element of that within church for sure, but I think that the main premise you know, of church is do what I say, like, and you feel that when you go. If I can take you to task on that, though, it's true, absolutely, what you say about some churches. What's happened is those are the churches that still exist and have grown. The ones that say we're equal, let's decide things together. I mean, a Quaker fundamental principle is we decide things in unity. There is no hierarchy. It's not about doctrine. And we're not the only religious group that work that way. But unfortunately, what happened is we point at the worst case, 
which is abundantly present, right? So I'm not denying that existence at all. So we say, well, see, all religion is like that. And that is racism as if, just as if you had pointed to people coming from Mexico, they're all rapists, right? Uh, Murderers too. (laughs) Yeah. You point at the worst case and say, that's the whole group. We do that with respect to religion and it's undercut the goodness of our society because we've only empowered what I consider the negative forms of religion. No, that's true. Well, when you hear about Catholicism, what's the only thing you hear about? You hear about the priests, right? <laughs> yeah. That are, you know, that are committing these crimes against children. This is what you associate now with Catholicism. As opposed to the Mary Knoll sisters who were so active in Central America, working for the people there, giving their lives for that. We can look at the bad thing or the good thing, and usually most of us are a mix of it. We are. But you know what sells the most is the bad thing. Of course, of course. Especially media is good at manipulating us. Of course, for spirit and action, we try and do it differently. I'm trying to listen to you. I think you're listening. I think we're bringing in our best wisdom, synthesizing it into the best future for this country, for for the world, hopefully. I think you're doing that good work, getting people to think, thinking yourself, going deeper. I'm so appreciative of that. But I want to start my thank yous with a thank you to your wife for getting you on the path, getting you started there. And I think we all start with training wheels. And sometimes those are people in our lives, like your grandfather, like your wife, who give you the first step, which can lead to more good. So I'm really appreciative of the work of Pete Bastunas as the union steward for Local 150 Operating Engineers down there in Illinois, where he lives taking your all your time and we had such a great visit pete while we were on vacation i enjoyed it a lot you so impressed my wife as well when she came into the conversation i really feel fortunate after working a very hard week that you took such a major chunk of time to be with us here for spirit in action folks there are going to be bonus excerpts little pieces of this conversation we can't fit in a 55 minute broadcast they're on northern spirit radio org. Go there. You can hear a full uncut version of this interview. You can hear those bonus excerpts taken out. And again, just a great big thank you for your thought, for your heart, and for your labor for the good of the world. I mean, you know, sure, you're taking care of your family and including your grandchildren. I'm so appreciative of the way that you put yourself totally at the service of the world and that you joined us here today for Spirit in Action. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much, Mark. I enjoyed our visit likewise up north. Had a really good conversation with you and <laughs> we just kept talking. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. My wife remarked about you too and just said, you know, you, you have a, a good way about you. And some people, when you talk to them, you feel that. And I definitely felt that with you. So I felt like I've known you my whole life. <laughs> I'm happy to count you as a brother. Likewise. Again, thanks to your wife. Folks, Listen to the full talk with Pete Bastunas out on northernspiritradio.org, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.